Welcome to All Road 65 Max Radio, where the road ahead gets brighter as we journey toward truth, traveling through our dreams and inspiration into a new reality. It's time, and your ticket is waiting. All aboard All Roads Lead 65 Max with Pamela Henderson. Greetings. Thank you for joining me on BBS Radio, All Road 65 Max. I am your host, Pamela L. Henderson. My focus is my mission statement, to help create a quality of life through social growth, inspiring jewels to become leaders by establishing partnerships with corporations, nonprofits, donors, sponsors, volunteers, the community, and abroad. My special guest today is Geraldine Ritter. After healing from over 31 surgical procedures, battling chronic pain management and keeping depression at bay, Ms. Ritter has climbed her way back to a life of happiness and healing. Now you can find her ringing the NYSE bell and organizing events championing for women's health. But it was a hard-won battle to leave the hospital and to be with her family and friends again, which she details in her new memoir, Bone by Bone, a memoir of trauma and healing. It made nationwide news on May 12, 2015. An Amtrak train derailed traveling to New York City, killing eight passengers and injuring over 200. Ms. Ritter was one of those passengers. Her pelvis was shattered and all her organs were pushed up by her heart. Her story begins with this fateful accident and details every resilient step she took to make it home and back to her family. She's go, she goes further to describe her fight to get prescription medications and adjust to her husband as a caregiver. At last, I want to welcome this phenomenal woman, Ms. Ritter. Thank you for this interview chance and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's really an honor to be here. And by all means, please call me Gerilyn. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So how are you doing? I mean, I am you know, so inspired by you. Well, thank you. I, I I truly appreciate that. And I'm doing really well. I am doing really well. Um, and it, it brings me joy to even say that. <laughs> That's right. That is right. <laughs> that is right. So I'm going to get right to it, Ms. Ritter. You are the author of the new book, Bone to Bone. Tell us about your book and how writing your book has inspired you. Well, I'm really happy to do that. You know, I I was on total disability. I, I went from being a relatively senior executive traveling the world every single week um, to being completely dependent in a hospital bed on a ventilator and not expected to live. 
in the flash of an eye. And, you know, that was, <laughs> needless to say, quite a difficult transition. And I was on permanent disability, a long-term disability for two and a half years from my job. Recovery was far more painful and took way longer than I expected. I was so completely um, unrealistic. <laughs> I kept calling my boss saying, I'll be back in six weeks. I'll be, well, maybe another six weeks. Well, I just need one more surgery and, you know, by the end of the year. <laughs> so, right, right. You know, reality settled in gradually and um, after quite a time, I sat down with one of the most inspiring leaders I've ever had the opportunity to work with. Um, he's the CEO of our company at the time. His name is Ken Frazier and just an incredibly inspirational leader. And he said to me, you know you have to write a book. And I said, well, you know, I've kind of started writing my experiences, but I worried it would seem like it was somehow glorifying the accident or my survival, which I had no intention of doing. He said, no, 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 you're getting it all wrong. Your story can help others. You have a light and you need to let it shine. You need to bear witness and you need to share your story. And I really realized he was right. I was given an incredible gift. The doctors told my family I was very unlikely to live. My family flew in from all around the United States and one of my brothers packed a dark suit for my funeral. I, I've had a doctor tell me he has no medical explanation for why I survived. And I don't believe I deserved it. That's, that's crazy. The, the eight people that passed in that accident deserved their life as well. It was a gift. It was a gift. It was an undeserved gift of grace. But if you get a gift that big, you darn better share it. <laughs> And so this is, this book is, is my attempt to share what I know now and that I wished I had known then at the beginning of my recovery journey when I was feeling very alone in a lot of pain and really suffering. So that's why I wrote it. And and that's one of the reasons I'm really pleased to share it with folks that it might help. That's right. That's amazing. That is very, very amazing. So I have a question to ask. What do you consider to be the greatest strength and weaknesses when someone is healing from trauma? You know, I think the hardest thing to do is to wait. You know, by, by nature, we're impatient. We want to get better. We don't like uncertainty. And I had such a constellation of so many injuries. I had nine different specialists, you know, and everybody could tell me how that specific body part or, or body system was healing. But, but nobody could really tell me overall when I would feel better or whether I would ever wow feel normal or or walk without pain again. And so learning to live with that uncertainty and learning to be 
I, I call it in my book, there's this great theologian that, that talked about the importance of patience and, and the fact that love has a time and, and the importance of being a friend of time. And I tell you, I was the enemy of time. <laughs> I, I, I was counting the days and I was going to be back at work. I, not because right. I was just so driven by my work, but, but because I think work represented normality. And yeah. I set these wildly unrealistic expectations. And then I felt really bad about myself when I didn't make them. You know, and, and everybody around me knew they were unrealistic, but I don't think anybody wanted to burst my bubble. <laughs> and so right. when I said, Absolutely. hey, I'll be back at work by the end of the summer, they all <laughs> kind of nodded. And then when I wasn't back at work at the end of summer, I felt like I had failed. Maybe I didn't try hard enough. Maybe maybe I wasn't being strong enough. And, you know, giving myself the time I needed to heal was really the biggest challenge. And you are absolutely right. That is the biggest challenge because I myself have gone through some trauma. And here I am the type of person that I normally let things just, you know, roll off my shoulder and I just keep going and everything. But I didn't realize that I was broken. Yeah. But I'm, I, I'm here. I am mentoring others and staying positive, but inside I was broken myself and I didn't realize that until one day I was just exhausted. Yeah. And so I said, well, let me have a cup of coffee because I got to keep going here because, you know, I can't slow down now. I have this right, to do. I have that. Right. To do. I got to talk to Sue and I have to do this. But all of a sudden, Geraldine, I just burst out crying. I mean, and I couldn't stop because for whatever reason, I just, I was tired. And then that's when I really came to realization that, look here, Pamela, (laughs) you need to just like take a step back and relax now. I need to heal. And I didn't realize that. But my husband was always telling me, I think you're going a little bit too fast. You really need to like give yourself time to heal. And I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm I'm okay. I'm going to keep right. this moving. In all reality, I was broken. I, you know, I so identify with that. In the beginning, we were just so grateful I was alive and that I didn't, I wasn't paralyzed and, and, I didn't have a, a major brain injury and nobody could believe that because my body had absorbed so much force and everything else was broken. <laughs> and right. it was just so grateful. It was like, oh, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. And, and then reality set in and I, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't move. I couldn't do anything for myself. I was in pain all the time. And, you know, you can only be grateful for pain for so long. <laughs> <laughs> and I, after a while, it, it, but then I felt guilty. Like, what right do I have to complain? Eight people died in this accident. I'm at home with my family. I, I have no, I have no right to complain. And I had to learn to kind of give myself space and say, you know, this isn't something you can just dig deep and work a little harder. This is bigger than you. And, and I'm just so used to thinking, I can do it. I'll just work harder. I'll just study harder. I'll just, 
you know, I'll, I'll just work a longer hour. And this was the first time I hit a wall like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> and, and I, I, I had to say, you know, I can't do it on my own. And I need to grieve what I have lost, even though it certainly doesn't compare with those who lost their lives. I have suffered a loss and I, I need time. I need time. But what was the strength that you had during that time? You know, very gradually. And it, it wasn't like a, a sudden realization, but very long months of, of gradually getting stronger, getting out of the wheelchair, being on a walker, then graduating to crutches and, and then maybe just one crutch and finally I could walk, there started to be some tangible evidence of progress. And, you know, then I would have another surgery and I'd feel like that was a setback, but then you'd come back a little stronger. And, you know, I also have to say that my kids, my family, the people around me were absolutely huge. They gave me a reason to get up in the morning when I just didn't think I could. And, um, you know, I, I started to see these little shimmers of, I don't know, uh, uh, silver glass, something, something in the ashes of, of, of the crash. And I realized one day I, I was standing, I was out of bed. I was dressed actually. And my sons, I have three sons. They came home from school and it hit me. Wow. I've worked, I've always worked full time. I've never been home when they walked in the door from school at 2.30 or 3 o'clock. And I thought, oh, that's really great. And and they climbed up in bed with me and we watched a movie in the afternoon. And oh. I thought, wow, I've never done this before in the middle of a weekday afternoon. And you start very gradually seeing the glimmers of, you know, the, the pieces of positive that you can pull out of your experience. And, you know, over time, if, if, if you're intentional about it, about looking for those good things, about trying new things that you never thought you'd try if you weren't stuck at home for two years, you know? Right. <laughs> and, and, and you kind of gradually build, it doesn't take away the bad, but it, but it builds new memories over the bad. And, yeah. you know, we, we all have power. We have the power to frame our own perspective. You can decide what you're going to focus on. And the accident is always with me. Not a day goes by I don't think about it. Not a day goes by I don't feel pain. But, you you know, there's a muscle there that, that you can strengthen and deliberately focusing on the good, the joy, the fact that you're here, the fact that you can do things that nobody thought you'd be able to do. That's incredibly empowering. Yes, you are absolutely right. But one thing that you had for strength is you had your family. And yeah, when you have your family, then that's all that matters at that time. And especially when you are in a healing process, it's so important to have someone that you love that can help you 
maintain that strength and to move forward gracefully, you know? And it, it brings me to that. It's true, but it's question. complicated for them. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You know, it's it's complicated for them. With with my kids it was a little different because you know, you've got you've got three young boys or they were they were young teenagers and, and my youngest was only eight at the time of the accident. You know, I, I really felt a responsibility and such incredible gratitude that I got to continue to be their mom. And I just couldn't imagine it any other way. And and they really, I would push myself to be out of bed by the time they got home from school because I wanted to, them to see me standing up and, and not just laying in bed all the time. And my husband was absolutely wonderful and he meant all the best. And he was a fabulous caretaker driving me to eight billion doctor's appointments. But I'd be lying if I said it wasn't stressful. You know, just like my life got turned upside down, you know, on an There's ordinary day, on an ordinary business trip, on a train I'd taken a hundred times, his life got turned upside down. And all of yeah. a sudden, you know, he's got a wife who was really independent traveling the world and oh, now oh. she can't go to the bathroom by herself. <laughs> And I hated being dependent on him. And he was angry. You know, people react differently. I was sad. And he was mad. And we just, he wasn't mad at me. He was, he was mad at the situation. He was mad at the Amtrak. He was, he was mad at the legal framework, you know, and, and I was, I was just trying to get through the day. I was just sad. And we couldn't, in a way, we really struggled to meet each other. And, and, and see the situation through the other person's eyes because we were so consumed by the situation. And so, you know, our marriage was really under a lot of strain during those years. And, you know, I've now done enough research that I recognize that caregivers have, you know, in, incredible burdens and sadly incredible rates of depression and I appreciate more now what he was going through, and I I have to be honest, and I'm embarrassed to say it, but I don't think I appreciated it at the time. And so I, you know, family was critical, but I don't want to gloss over the fact that these kinds of things can be incredibly hard on families as well. That is so true. And that was my next discussion with you, because in your book, you talked about holding on to gratitude in times of personal crisis. And so, yeah. You know, it's it's it's, it's one of the reasons and I I love I love what you're doing and connecting people um, and empowering them. you know, through, through building their networks of relationships because, you know, I had my faith, which was tremendously important to me. I had my family, but I also really recognized the importance of, of kind of a broader network of friends. You know, the people that I wasn't living with day in, day out, <laughs> that, 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 that I wasn't, you know, having to ask to pick up a prescription, that they were, you know, a step removed but we're dropping by every afternoon to, you know, drop off a funny card or have a glass of wine with me in the evenings or, or take me in my wheelchair out to a movie. And, yeah. you know, yes. that, that experience and, and 
some of these folks I wasn't super close with before the accident, but I was just overwhelmed by how people leaned in and helped. You know, they, they just leaned in. They didn't say, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? They just leaned in and did. <laughs> it was so wonderful. You know, I was like, oh, where are the dogs? They're like, oh, I don't know. Somebody took them. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, I was too fragile to have dogs jumping on me, and they knew that, and somebody just took my dogs for six months. <laughs> right. Okay. And it was, That's right. You know, it was, it was, it was wonderful. It was beautiful. And I, you know, I appreciated all the meals, but at some point, you know, you're a little tired of all other people's Tupperware in your kitchen. And I said, thanks right. guys, no more meals. <laughs> I want normal and I want, I want to eat what I like. So, you know, they right. the meals. it was good, <laughs> but they kept me laughing. That's funny. You know, That's funny. you have to laugh. You, you have to laugh. You got to find crazy things to laugh about. You, you really do. Yeah, you do. Yes, you do. And especially now in these times, what, you know, what we're being faced with, with everything and we're still dealing with COVID and there's another oh. flu type that's out and you've got this monkey pox that's going on. And I mean, pretty soon we're just going to be standing there. We can't shake hands, can't hug or anything, but I love you. <laughs> I know. I know. And, and I think we've all experienced, you know, as, as things lightened up a bit and you were able to, to hug people again. Oh, how you appreciate it. You know, it's, it's physical. <laughs> you feel it in your bones, that connection you've been missing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I do agree. You said that in your book about forgiveness, letting go of pain from those who caused a traumatic incident is important to move forward. Can you, in your opinion, explain how can a person who has gone through trauma forgive? Because sometimes it's harder for those that has not had an apology, but still yes. forgiven in part. Yes. You know, and I, I really sympathize and empathize with those in that situation. I, you know, in the beginning, I remember arguing with um, my trauma surgeon, not arguing, but she had suggested to me that she recommended that all of her trauma patients, all of them, get counseling for PTSD. And I I was kind of like, what? I said, this was an accident. Nobody tried to hurt me. I'm not a combat veteran. I, it's just an accident. I, I, You know, I can't possibly have PTSD. You know, accidents happen. I'm a rational person. I know that. And she said, well, just keep it in mind, you know, and, right. and it was such good advice because I didn't feel like I deserved to feel that way because it was an accident. And, you know, it was an accident, though, caused by a conductor going 106 miles an hour on a curve designed for a maximum of 50 you know, and killed eight people. You know, so I have complicated feelings about that. Um, but ultimately, in my mind, I said, you know, people make mistakes. People make mistakes. And, you know, who am I to judge somebody for being distracted for a moment? 
when they weren't on drugs, they weren't on their phone, they weren't, you know, do, doing anything they weren't supposed to be doing, but they got distracted, clearly. The official report of the accident from the National Transportation Safety Board was that the conductor lost situational awareness. I mean, basically, wow. kind of lost track of where he was. And it wasn't intentional, certainly. But, you know, it, it still is upsetting because such a tragedy ensued from a moment of, you know, loss of focus. So, but, but what do I get from that? You know, if, if he'd have been jailed for the rest of his life, how does that make a difference to me? Not one bit, you know, and, and he didn't intend to hurt me. So, you know, I have said, look, I need to focus on me. I need to focus on the things I can control. And what I can control is how I think about this accident and how I think about the rest of my life. I can't control who likes me or not. I can't control what other people do. But my focus is on what I can do for myself, for my family, for my community, for other survivors. And so, you know, that's my best advice is you can't force forgiveness, right? You can't force your, you can't force your heart, but you can force yourself to focus on the things you can control and how to move forward rather than looking backward. That is so true. Now, when you stated that, and I understand when, you know, you have such a beautiful soul because for you to say it wasn't intentional, intentional, and I get that, but also the mouths that he was going, I mean, how are you distracted? Was it from reading a book, you know, um, you know? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I think there there were some reports of other train things going on with other trains, and there's a lot of suggestion he was distracted by by reports on the radio. You know, right. but ultimately, I've I've you know, and and I do believe, and I'm very pleased um, that the railroad system that Amtrak has installed safety measures that prevent this. You know, we can, we have self-driving cars. Goodness gracious, the technology to stop a speeding train. You know, they can detect it right. and they can slow that train down. And the tragedy of this accident was that that technology had been installed all up and down the Northeast Corridor, except on that curve, and it's the sharpest one in the Northeast Corridor. So, I was more angry about that it seemed i have no idea it seemed like cost cutting or not caring for for rider safety that those systems those rider safety systems were not in place because people are human and it's just entirely foreseeable that some conductor sometime is going to make a mistake so i'm glad now there's a requirement there's a law in place that passenger trains have to deploy that technology and there's been lots of delays lots of extensions but just last year all of the major passenger railroads finally deployed it well you know it just brought to my attention too i was just thinking about what you had just stated 
And I had a, I have a friend of mine whom husband also drives a train in Chicago. Uh-huh. And he had a, one of his colleagues at work apparently either went to sleep or kind of dozed off and had an accident. Oh. And so he was explaining to me that a lot of times it's from working like long hours, right. you know, like if someone comes in late, they have to stay or something that just happens and they have to stay And before you know it, they're doing a double shift. And when you right. talk about, you know, being in control as like an automobile and you're driving, you know, far distance and everything and you have to pull over to get rest. But here you are having to keep going and stop by stop and things like that. And so, yeah, I forgot about that. And that is a distraction and you can go to sleep. That's like, you know, so I think he had sleep apnea or something like that. I, so uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but I, you know, I, I am glad that better safety systems are deployed now. There's, there's yeah. more that can be done there, certainly. But, you know, I, I kind of went down that road for a while and then I, in a way, shut that door and said, that's looking backward. You know, I'm glad they've improved the safety systems. I need to focus on the things that I can do, you know, yes. for myself. And, and one of the things I felt that I could do was share my experience. And I said, you know, if nobody needs this book, great. <laughs> you know, I'm glad nobody needs to hear a story of surviving trauma. <laughs> but sadly, my suspicion, because, it, you know, it certainly doesn't have to be a train wreck. I mean, you know, there's there's jillions of, of, of automobile crashes every single day, every single year, and you know, we 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 all face different kinds of of major setbacks. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Maybe it's a child's illness. You know, maybe it's the rupture of a relationship or a a massive professional setback. I think some of the lessons in resilience apply no matter what challenge you're facing. And so, you know, my hope is that this would be a resource, you know, not just for trauma survivors necessarily, but for a lot of folks looking for, you know, stories, stories of hope. It's easy and it might take a long time and it's hard work, but it can be done. It can be done. We, we have that power within us. I do agree. I do agree. Now, have you been back riding the train since then? I sure have. I sure have. So I, I'm a really rational person. And I remember folks asking me and I thought, you know, this is back, of course, me assuming I was going to be back at work in a few weeks, which, you know, turned out to be two and a half years. Um, right. You know, in my job, I was in Washington all of the time and I I needed to, um, you know, I, I said, I am not going to let this crash. I am not going to let Amtrak inconvenience me the rest of my life. You know, I I know right. how rare this is. And now I kind of do it with my friends. I'm like, 
or, or my colleagues at work, I'm like, hey, ride with me because what are the chances? Like, I got to be the safest person to ride with, right? <laughs> couldn't, couldn't, couldn't possibly have Good a way to it. <laughs> You know, so I, the first time I did it, I, I didn't know how I would react truthfully. And my husband rode with me. And then later on, I took a trip with my sons because I didn't want them to be scared. And it all passed uneventfully. Um, and I do ride the train relatively frequently, but there is a visceral memory in my bones. I, I can't tell you it's like it was before. When I'm sitting in my seat focusing on my computer or something, it's fine. But when we go around the curve where the accidents happened, where the accident happened and those, those eight souls lost their lives, I know it. I mean, I, I don't even have to look at the map or look out the window. I know we are there. And I bow my head and I say a silent prayer. Um, and I, I just thank God that, that I am here and, and I pray for those who are still hurting, you know, and, and the families of those who are gone. And when I stand up, maybe to walk to the cafe car or something like that, I was standing at the time of the accident and I had stood up to get something out of my bag on the luggage rack. And I, I feel the train rocking and I have to hold on to the luggage rack. It's not a flashback. I know exactly where I am. I'm very in control, but I get goosebumps and I feel it in my bones. You know, I, I, you know, walking through the train and feeling that rocking or feeling the train go around a curve brings it all back in an instant. So, you know, I do it and that's, I've just accepted that that's part of it. And I try to stay seated and not walk around very much. <laughs> <laughs> But I commend you because you still moved forward. You had gotten back on that train and you stay calm for the most part because you let what be be because you are in control. So that's a beautiful outcome. That's a beautiful Thank outcome. You. you know, it really was. There's, you know, you, you probably know this when you're when you're a trauma victim, whatever the source of trauma you feel an enormous loss of control. You know, you, and, and I, for better or worse, am a person who likes to be in control. At least that's what my husband says. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? And it was really hard to have zero control. You know, zero control of my life for a while. I felt like of my future, of my own body. Doctors walked in, did what they were going to do. I didn't even know what they were doing. I couldn't feel it. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of a, a very gradual process of feeling in charge of my own body and my own life again. But, you know, now I, I appreciate it more. Like, I do have that power, and darn it, I'm going to use it. <laughs> I'm going to get back on the train. I'm going to do this <laughs> because I I have the power to do that. And I appreciate it in a way that I probably didn't before. I think before I would have just taken it for granted. But now it's it's even more precious. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Mm. You also know what it feels like to be ostracized. 
Would you share what it was like to go back to work and during the whispers of the doubters and how you, yeah, yeah, you know, there, there's, there was, there was stigma in a couple of ways, you know, really the, the first, even before I went back to work was the fact that I was on so many super powerful painkillers. Um, you know, fentanyl, oxycontin, oxycodone, maximum doses all at the same time. You know, well, I, how did I was you crushed. <laughs> you know, I was crushed. And I, I was mm-hmm. on, you know, heavy doses of all three plus a number of other drugs. I had 16 different prescriptions for months and months and months. And so it's, you know, there's, there's a lot a stigma there and when my husband would go to refill a fentanyl prescription or later on when I was well enough I I couldn't drive for well over a year but sometimes he would need to drive me because I would need to be there personally and you know the pharmacist is kind of looking at you suspiciously and and all my scars all my injuries are on my torso my pelvis my abdomen my chest and so if you just look at my face and my arms I look very normal or at least I think I do. Um, and, and the pharmacist right. would kind of look at you like, you know, oh, you must be an addict. You must be abusing this. Uh, you know, and I'm thinking, you have no idea who I am and what I am suffering. And, you know, it was, that part of it was hard and it was frustrating. And I'm fortunate that I never became addicted in the technical sense of feeling those cravings, but your body absolutely becomes dependent. And so I had to very gradually, very gradually wean off all of the the pain medicines, which meant I felt more pain, but also I suffered the withdrawal symptoms of nausea and shakiness and chills and, and, and it just felt like insult on top of injury to going through opioid withdrawal on top of trying to manage my pain and my injuries so that was that was difficult that was that was very very difficult and we're in the midst of an opioid crisis and far too many people have abused those drugs but legitimate pain patients like me I wouldn't be alive I couldn't have survived my life without them in those early months so you know, it wasn't pleasant to have to get off of them, but it was critical for my well-being. And, um, you know, when I, when I was finally ready to go back to work, I, I went back part time and it was hard. I, I am so appreciative. You know, companies have a culture, but they also really have character. And I was so fortunate to work for a company and for bosses and with colleagues that did support me. But I was also a little bit embarrassed by needing that support. You know, you, you want to present yourself as a professional, as somebody who's got it under control. Yes, I've been out for two and a half years, but I'm back. I've got it. You can count on me. Right. You know, and right. the reality was I was not that way. <laughs> But I didn't feel like I could tell anybody that because I wanted to be like, don't worry, I can handle it, you know. And and I I would get so tired, 
so, so tired. I'd be in the middle. It would just descend on me like a curtain out of the blue. I had to sleep. I remember being in really high-level meetings, lots of people around the table, and I would just feel myself falling asleep, and there was nothing I could do about it. And so I would take my cell phone, and I would pretend I got just got a very important call, and I would I would I would pick it up and hold my my hand over it like I was talking to someone, and I would wave to the people in the room and duck out like you know I'm just very important. I have to take this call, and I would go into my office and close the door and lay down under my desk, set the alarm on my phone, and take a nap for 20 minutes. I mean, it was it was yeah. embarrassing. I'm laying on the floor. I thought. Oh my gosh, if somebody walks in, they're going to see my legs sticking out from under my desk and think I've keeled over. <laughs> but, you know, I just, it was the only way I could cope, you know? And then I would feel better after my nap and I'd go back to the you meeting and pretend I finished my phone call. You know, so it just, you know, I just kind of had to laugh at myself, but you just had to cope any way you could. Um, and, and eventually I finally fessed up and, and very kindly, the company put a couch in my office for my naps. <laughs> People okay. would walk in and they're like, oh, man, you got a couch. I was like, yeah, man, you get hit by a train, you get a couch. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you needed that. You know, yes. I, you know, I did. And finally I was like, forget it. Why am I embarrassed about that? You know, right. I need a couch. Give me a couch. <laughs> I'll buy my own couch. But I'm, I need a couch in the office. <laughs> And, and, you know, the, the rest of the day you got me, but I need 20 minutes in the middle of the day. And, you know, I think standing up for myself and asking for what I needed and no, they were wonderful. They were like, Oh yeah, no problem. Of course. I'm like, Oh, why didn't I do this before? You know, I think you also have to trust that, that people are supporting you. You know, it, it wasn't the company. It was me. You know, it was me not wanting to admit any weakness. When yeah. everybody understood and, and they were enormously supportive when I finally let them be supportive. Right. Makes a big difference, doesn't it? Isn't that funny you know, how it, it does? We got to get out of ourselves and think like, Oh, we're so yeah. strong. No, you know what? You can't do it all. <laughs> Isn't that something? Women, we just, that's just a bad habit of us. We just like, okay, I'm a superwoman. I'm going to do it all. And this is, this is me. Yeah, I can do that. I too. don't need you. I don't need help. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking down like an old cracker, right? <laughs> That is so true. That is so true. And speaking of that, I was just discussing with someone about mental health because mental health counselors provide emotional counseling guidance to individuals suffering from trauma and behavioral disorders as well. My focus through my foundation is stipulated to have a group focused meeting as part of their scheduled program, because I do believe when you are open to discuss your behavioral habits or the trauma that you you has been inflicted on yourself, you are able to recognize and take responsibility that is needed as you move forward towards a healing process. What is your input about behavioral disorders that leads to trauma as well? Oh, it's it's such an important. And I I just love that that you have 
incorporated that into your program because, you know, that stigma still exists. And, you know, I have been deliberately outspoken, if you will, at work about saying that, yes, I suffered depression. Yes, I suffered PTSD because I'm in a pretty senior position at my company. And I figure if I can't be open about that, then who can? You know, then then who can? Um, and so, but it was really a journey for me. In the beginning, I absolutely denied it. I I was, I didn't feel like I had any right to feel depressed. I rejected the idea that I was depressed. But, you know, after a couple of months of crying randomly and being scared to be in a car and yelling at my family, you're kind of like, yeah, you're not doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's not them, maybe it's you. <laughs> yeah. you know, I finally, yeah. you know, kind of said, okay, I, I can't, I can't deal with this myself. And, you know, I did seek professional help and, and that was helpful. Um, but it, it was hard for me to admit that I needed to do that, but it was helpful. It also, you know, I also kind of began my own journey and I needed to understand that this was not weakness on my part. There, there are biochemical, physiological reasons, you know, why our brains react to trauma in a certain way, you know, and, and as I started to kind of learn and read books on the subject, you know, I understood that it was, it was not me being weak or feeling sorry for myself or, you know, overwhelming physical trauma sets off a cascade of of chemical reactions, of hormones, you know, chronic pain does that, and it is entirely natural that it affects your mood. And as I understood that, I started to feel less embarrassed about needing help for my mood and 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 for my fears and and for my nightmares and that realization was important to me i probably could have gotten there sooner <laughs> it took me a while to 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 realize that but but once i did i opened myself up not just to you know professional therapy but also to other ways of healing i had always I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I had always made fun of things like meditation and yoga and breathing exercises. I was like, oh, give me a break. I don't have time for that. You know, when when I was pregnant with my first son, I refused to go to those, you know, Lamaze classes for first time moms because I told my husband, I have been breathing for 30 years and I think I know how to do it. (laughs) I was not going to waste time going to a class where they told me to breathe. <laughs> so, um, yeah. you know, but, but when I was, when I was weaning off the opioids, when I was dealing with a ton of pain, you know, I, I had a teacher that came to my house and, and took me through some of these breathing exercises, very gentle yoga, you know, a, a type of meditation I'd never tried before. And I was astonished. It, it, it's not like it made me feel instantly better, but, but going back to our discussion around control, it, it yeah. made me feel more in control and more in touch with my own body as opposed to it was just this, you know, jumbled collection of broken parts. It was like, no, 
this is the body that saved me. This is the body that's healing. And I, I can control it. And, and those kinds of techniques I still practice today. And I would have Ooh, never done that before the accident, you know, taking that time to rest your mind, to meditate about what's important, to pray, to breathe deeply. You know, those kinds of things can have a big impact on our physical and mental health and give us Absolutely. back that sense of agency that, that, that we are in charge of this. We can control our emotions. We can make choices about our perspective. And ultimately that was really healing for my mental health as well. It felt like a toolbox. And before I just felt like, you know, gee, what's next? What's going to hit me? <laughs> and now it was like, no, no, I'm armed. <laughs> I can handle this. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, <clears throat> I am I am into health and awareness. I exercise, but here I am running like almost like a mile, maybe four to five times a week. I was kickboxing and wow. I tell you, but I was not physically feeling the way I wanted to feel. And then one day I went to this yoga class and I was only like 42 at the time uh-huh. and everyone else was a little older, like in their late fifties or early sixties. But anyway, uh-huh. here I am sitting here in this position and I'm trying to find this mental uh, where everybody else was and I just couldn't right. find it. And I got frustrated right. with myself, like, you know, why is it that I'm not feeling like her? I was asking the instructor. And so she really had taken the time to really explain it's not just one part of yoga. And right. you really have to know what type of yoga works for you. But now I am a yoga queen. I tell you, <laughs> I, I love it. Uh, <laughs> I come to find that the exercises that I do now um, I have lost inches. My weight has went down and I really, really feel good. So good I am co- continuing yoga. Yep. No, it's, it's true. I, I was so, I mean, this is embarrassing. I was just such a snob. I was like, oh, yoga's for people that don't want to actually sweat or actually exercise. You know? <laughs> and I was like, how, how does that count as exercise? You know, but it's that enforced slowness and strength and flexibility and and there's you know there's a metaphor there in terms of our mental strength our mental flexibility and 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 taking the time to to find your balance literally Absolutely. it is Absolutely. healing it is healing i am i am a i i was a big non-believer and i'm a convert <laughs> yes yes you know in your book speaking Personal and professional resilience in the face of uncertain times, Ms. Ritter, as you have discussed bone to bone, the book that leads to what outcome, in your opinion? You know, the the outcome is a very intentional focus on okay. how I spend my time and how I 
perceive and, and react and, and feel about those around me. You know, if, if there's the one thing I've taken away from the accident, it's, it's a sense of perspective. Like, I don't really do small talk like I used to. I don't put up with stuff I used to because life is short, you know? <laughs> right, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, 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 I work at a job I really believe in. And if I didn't, I'd work at a different job. And I've always said the second that I feel like uh, there's no point in this, I'm going to, I leave and I do something else. And, you know, I, I really nurture those relationships with my friends. You know, in the past, maybe I sent a birthday card, maybe I sent a text, I'd go to a party now and then. But But now, you know, the people that really stood by me through thick and thin, you know, you, you have to nurture those relationships. And so I am much more deliberate about how I spend my time and trying to spend on things that matter. You know, it, it was really hard to, to write bone by bone. People always ask, oh, or they say, oh, it must have been cathartic. I'm like, are you kidding? This is the worst time in my life. And I relived right. it over and over and over and wrote about it in detail. It was awful. Yes. No, I didn't enjoy it one bit. <laughs> but yeah, <absolutely>. <laughs> I was happy that I was doing it. And it felt important to do it. It felt like it mattered. It felt like I was paying forward some of the gifts that I had received. And so, you know, that's why I poured five years into it. You know, and even when I went back to work, it, it kind of felt like I had two jobs because I'm working and, you know, you're you're a mom and, and I'm trying to write and publish a book. But those were all really meaningful things. And I said, you know, yeah. This is wonderful. I'm, I'm, you know, I spent years flat on my back and my goodness gracious, I'm busy. This is, this is good. <laughs> this is good. Be grateful for, for, for being busy, for having a lot to do and being able to do it. You know, you can look at these things uh, from a positive perspective or you can stay stuck in the negative. And, and you know, that's a choice. That is a choice. And I, I think I'm much better about making the positive choices these days because I've recognized them as opposed to just sort of taking it for granted like I used to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me, how can someone contact you and buy your book? Oh, my goodness. I am so happy to talk about that. So um, <laughs> right this moment, right now, it is available for immediate shipping at bonebybonebook.com. And the audio version, um, which I read myself, as well as the ebook, are on Amazon. And by next month, the print version will be on Amazon as well. Um, but you can order it right now on the print copy, the hard copy at bonebybonebook.com dot com if you'd like and if you'd like to hear me read it that's on amazon oh that's beautiful yes i look forward to that miss ritter it's is funny my publisher asked me he said do you want an actor to read it and i was like oh yeah leave it to the professionals and he said you know the authenticity <laughs> right. of the author is is actually kind of valuable and i said you know what it would drive me crazy to hear somebody else read my book. <laughs> I said, oh. you know, I may not have the greatest voice, but you're right. I'm doing it myself. <laughs> I said, I'm not, I can't, I, I wouldn't be able to stand hearing my story with somebody else 
with somebody else's lens or somebody else's emphasis. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, Why not be the authentic saddled up you in the recording studio and we did it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So, Miss Ritter, is there anything else you would like to share before we go? You know, the only last thought I have is just, you know, I wrote the book because I really believe in the power of stories and sharing our stories. And anybody that goes through trauma or or any kind of difficult time, I think, often feels really alone. Even if you've got people around you, they don't understand what you're going through all the time. And so... I would just encourage, and, and you're doing it exactly on this show, which is wonderful, people to share those stories because you never know who you're going to help and who's going to be touched and who's going to find strength in what you have been through or things that you have tried. So I would just urge listeners, whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through, don't hide it. You know, let your life shine. You survived it and share it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Miss Ritter, it has been a pleasure having you on my show and I do look forward to chatting further in the future. And I thank you so, so much. I am a advocate of health and awareness, a sea of redox, a perfectly balanced mixture of molecules that activates the body's own native ability to empower the immune system and enhance health. You can pick up a bottle by visiting 65maxfoundation.timacia.com. I am a award-winning author of the new book, A Journey of a Sapphire, a girl who overcame adversity and uncertainty. I hope to inspire others to never give up on their dreams, and how to recognize behavioral problems. Please visit journeyofasapphire.com to purchase your copy or on amazon.com, Pamela Henderson. I leave you with this quote of the day. One of the things that pains me is we have a, we, we have so tragically underestimated the trauma, the hardship we create in this country, when we treat people unfairly, when we incarcerate them unfairly, when we condemn them unfairly. Brian Stevenson. Thank you guys so much. Until next time from A Truth Sapphire, have a great day. Thank you for listening to All Roads 65 Max Radio with Pamela Henderson. Join us every other week on Tuesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on BBS Radio Station One. And please visit allroads65max.org and become a volunteer or sponsor and be the change you want to see in this world. With your help, we can make a difference in our society and uplift those who so desperately need our help. Thank you for tuning in.